Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Roughly 14% of kids in public schools have been labeled as having a disability, a label that can translate to a duality of helpful services and harmful expectations. Your own outcomes will be better if you've been taught confidence over limitation and fear. On today's show, we speak with author Deborah Winking about her new book, Capable. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. According to recent data from the National Center for Education Statistics, roughly 14% of public school students in the U.S. are labeled as having some type of disability, including learning disabilities, speech and language impairments, or autism. Labels can serve as a way to ensure that a child with special needs gets the resources they need. But for Fort Collins author Deborah Winking, labels can also create expectations that limit a child's development. Early in her career as an educator, Winking taught children with autism at the New England Center for Autism. She works now for the Center for Educational Leadership at the University of Washington. In her book, Capable, a story of triumph for children the world has judged as different, Winking shares her own deeply personal story of raising a child with special needs. And she joins me now to discuss her book and her work with other parents to help their children succeed regardless of the challenges they face. Deb, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now, before we jump in to talk about the book, I I wanted to ask about the concept of labeling kids. You note that it can be helpful shorthand, but there is also potential harm from being labeled. Yeah, absolutely. Overall, you know, in my mind, labeling is not good wherever we see it. But unfortunately, in this country, attaching a label is kind of a necessary evil for getting kids served. You know, in the short run, it can bring a certain sense of peace, particularly if your child is in pain or if you know something is wrong, but no one can really tell you what's going on. But in fact, labels fall woefully short because a label can't capture a child not by a long shot. And so usually I advocate for using the label for services that it can provide, not for the label itself. Yeah. And you address this in your book a a number of times. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the most important thing um, about a label is what it changes about you as a parent and how you react to your child. Can, can you say more about what that might look like? Yeah, actually, if, if you're okay with it, I would read just this little short passage where, you know, I realize kind of the potential of the label to change me. Please do. Okay, here, here goes. The act of proclaiming the words, the, the bestowing of a label would change nothing. My fatal flaw would not be so much the diagnosis as it would be falling prey to the limiting beliefs about my son because of that diagnosis. No, my Achilles heel would be what I would allow to change or not within me in terms of how I viewed my child. 
After all, I was the most influential person in Jack's life. And what I did had the power to create seismic shifts when piled up over the course of his lifespan. So it sounds like labels can be limiting in terms that it it puts a, any kind of a diagnosis front and center. Do you have terms that, that you prefer using? Yeah, you know, I always, always, always defer to people first language. Um, I think folks of a certain age, myself included, who came up before it was used regularly can see people first language as a little clunky, but we always need to lead with the person. My son has a spectrum disorder. My daughter uses a wheelchair. My niece has a learning disability or an intellectual special need. But in all cases, they're a child first. You know, I think we're, we're all getting a lot smarter about this. Um, I see it in versions of how we talk about even historical groups. We say now enslaved people and not slaves. I think reminding us all of our shared humanity. And why do these labels matter for children and how you, what terms that you use? Well, I liken it to the old real estate motto, mantra, location, 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 except with labels, it's information, information, information. You know, I advise using the labeler diagnosis for the information it provides and the services it gets, that it gets your child at a seat at the table with other kids. For example, I have a friend who used her son's label of spectrum disorders to get him the transportation to therapies and to a friend's club after school, which ultimately allowed him a literal seat at the table with friends where he could interact with other kids in typical ways. Deb, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, You have experience teaching children with autism and other kids who are differently wired. What led you into the education field? Well, you know, it's funny. We talk about people with disabilities as being shut away, kind of warehoused in the er in the 70s and early 80s, kind of that image of kids with downs and other challenges being taught in church basements uh, before uh, public law 94-142 went into effect with vigor, before kids were guaranteed an education. And so at 13 years old, I think, I was asked to teach these kids who are actually not kids at all, but late teens and people in their 20s and 30s, literally down a back stairwell in our church basement. I think presumably so that other kids and parents would not have the inconvenience of having to encounter them. Um, And from then on, from 13, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I taught kids with autism in Boston at the New England Center for Autism and started the first community-based work program there. And through it all, I kind of saw how the the emphasis on labeling and the misuse of diagnostic testing really got in the way of opportunities for my students and kind of... kind of relegated them to a lower position. So ultimately I left special ed for a while to pursue a PhD in ed psych testing and evaluation. And it was funny because as a teacher, I had sat on the other side of the desk from parents and offered kind of then what I see now is just these sort of meaningless platitudes. Like there's a broad range of behaviors you may see in your child. When really now I see what these parents actually crave was support you know, a way to be with their child, a way out of fear and a way to parent 
um, that would help their child live their best life. And all of this, of course, transpired before I had a child of my own with a special need. So then finally, fast forward to the present where at the time Capable was released in May, I was teaching sixth through 12th graders with special needs here in Well County. Well, I want to talk about your book, uh, Capable, because the, the writing style it feels deeply personal. It feels like this could have been written as kind of a handbook for parents with lots of statistics and lots of advice. Why did you choose not to write that kind of book? Yeah, there was a lot of hand-wringing about this. Um, initially, I wrote the book as prescriptive nonfiction kind of a workbook. Um, and focus groups with parents with kids with challenges like that, but I never felt comfortable with it. And really the short answer is I wanted people to feel something. You know, I believe, I believe deeply in the power that a single case has. And a good friend of mine uh, quotes Carl Rogers, you know, that which is most personal is most universal. And that's kind of what I wanted for Capable. Um, and that's why I wrote as a memoir. You know, I've talked to so many parents with so many stories. Uh, this, this fantastic parent I spoke with last night has a 17-year-old with significant challenges. And she, she said she loved the book and it made her laugh and cry, but she also said it made her angry. And I thought, good, good. I want people to feel the whole range of emotions because I think that's where parenting lives. You know, parenting for all of us in the middle of that mess. Um, but I argue that I believe there's a particular circle of complexity and uncertainty and fear reserved for parents of children the world has judged as somehow different. And what I wanted to do with Capable was to untangle all of that through story. So I, so I just wanted other parents so that other parents might learn through this story and say to themselves, hey, she did this with her kid and it worked and maybe I could too. Yeah. Well, and you are the parent of a son who was born with a rare genetic syndrome that affected his development quite profoundly. Tell us about Jack. Yeah. You know, although we didn't know what was going on at the time, Jack was a twin born with a rare genetic syndrome. It was an overgrowth uh, condition that caused his whole body to be limp. Low tone is the the, the term they use, it affected each muscle throughout his body, his hands, and even the muscles throughout his mouth that govern speech. So the, the syndrome leads with that, but also includes a range of learning and communication difficulties. So Jack received a lot, a lot of therapies. And at three, he was uh, placed in a multiply handicapped preschool classroom. Mm. When you finally did get a diagnosis, what went through your mind? What were you feeling? You know, I, I write about that in the book. Um, there was really a kind of a surreal feel to it. Um, and you, I realized you have to hold on to kind of what was, what is real. And for me at the time, it was four papers that were slapped into my hand by the geneticist, four prescriptions for services, OT or occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and tumor scans. And that was the, kind of the weight of it, the reality of it. If you're just joining us, we are talking with Fort Collins-based author Deborah Winking about her book, Capable. Deb, I would love it if you'd read uh, another excerpt from your book. And this takes place kind of early on in Jack's life. 
Yeah, we're at the we're at the beach. Uh, to set this up, we're at the beach actually on the Jersey Shore. Um, perhaps frustrated or embarrassed by the harsh developmental lines drawn between Jack and his friend's fine specimen of a boy, one day Pete suggested we change it up. We juggled applying sunscreen with the task of loading up our kitty convoy of strollers, diaper bags, coolers, towels, beach umbrellas, and three babies. Just as we were about to set off on our two block sojourn to the beach, he offered, hey, why don't we just head down with, without Jack this time? He's just the flesh blob. Let's let him sleep. Mom will take care of him. Just an offhand comment. How should I take it? Not purposely cruel. After all, Pete had been handed his dad card abruptly by the twins' premature birth. He was uncomfortable with all the objectively ugly plastic baby paraphernalia and all the lost freedom that comes with the job. He, like a lot of guys in his position, still wanted to travel light. The comment was offered casually, but my response was anything but. I went postal. We will not leave Jack at home. My husband's words had picked open the fragile protective scab, laying bare all our undiscussed fears. This was a defining moment for me. And I remember it today with technicolor clarity. This was the day I decided that Jack would do everything his twin sister did. My son would not be left behind. As you write, that day at the beach was really a defining moment in your life and in Jack's and your whole family. Talk about that change for you. I talk a lot about how the diagnosis meant everything, but nothing at the same time. You know, it, it meant everything. It was a seismic shift, but it also meant nothing. I recognized that the diagnosis was a neutral life, a neutral event in Jack's life. It was nothing for him. But what, what would matter what, was what would change in me. And so I set out to, to identify what I called a vision of capable for Jack. This concept of capable parenting really shaped your vision for your own child and his future. Yeah. I, you know, I had a vision for, for Jack that he would graduate from high school and college. I imagined him working in a job and leaving notes on the fridge for a roommate to pick up the milk or to sign for a car loan, you know, all kind of all the mundane experiences that we consider part of daily life. So for me, that, that vision meant not buying into what the experts said, that he would never write with his hands. And so she rely on a piece of technology to do his writing for him, or that he should be served up simpler work in the classroom because he just couldn't handle it. So ultimately, that vision I had for Jack meant that he had to exit special ed, a system that I thought at the time was holding him back. But I want to add that this is really important. Every child is unique. And the vision that made sense for Jack is not the vision for every child. But I do argue that every parent needs to begin with their own vision of capable for their child. That's the first part of my conversation with Deb Winking, author of Capable. In a moment, we'll hear about the inspiration behind the book and what Winking thinks parents and non-parents alike could take away from it. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
We're speaking today with Fort Collins-based author Deborah Winking. Her new book, Capable, A Story of Triumph for Children the World Has Judged as Different, details her experience raising a child with special needs and insights from her career working with children with autism. When you sat down to write this book, uh, who did you write it for? Who is Capable for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I think Capable is for you if someone or any circumstances has put a limitation on your child. You know, a, a diagnostician has made a proclamation or traumatic event has changed life for your child. If your child is differently wired, it, 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 it's, it's about if your child has somehow been singled out by the world as, as being less than that I think capable is for you. And you say that capable is for parents with children who've been handed all kinds of diagnoses. How can that be? Yeah, I think this is really, really key um, because the messages that we send our kids are critical regardless of their level of current functioning. If their challenges are severe or mild, it's not just our words, the words we say, but the words we don't say and our actions and our gestures. Kids attend to all of that. And I think herein lies the universal appeal of Capable. For the last three years now, I've worked summers in Guatemala at a school for kids with special needs called Somos uh, Somos Hijos del Lago. And there at that school, I, I noticed that by picking up the cup to these kids' mouths, the adults around them sent messages that, that these kids were not able to drink without spilling. And in fact, the kids ran with that and were actually manipulating the adults um, because the message they got was that they couldn't do it. Another example, this is, this is one of my own making. By not saying to ninth grader Michael, who was in my class, what, what are you gonna do your passion project on? I was actually communicating that I thought someone with his level of learning disability would never catch up on their acquired work enough to engage in something as frivolous as a passion project. Uh, Another, a mom I work with stressed to me, his teacher in front of her sixth grader, you know, he's right in front of him. He's not good at computers. You know, you know, he just doesn't like computers. You know, he's, he really struggles with computers. Um, And finally, I have a friend with a son on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, who says that she for years and years talked about him like he was not there. And after reading Capable, she now feels very differently about that. So whether your struggle is stuttering or cerebral palsy, autism or anxiety, your own outcomes will be better if you've been taught confidence over limitation and fear. And we talked earlier about labels being kind of a convenient shorthand sometimes, but it also sounds like there's a convenience aspect to it. For example, with the kids drinking that you mentioned, you know, you don't want to clean up spills if they happen to spill. And you're kind of saying, let them spill. Let them spill and let them (laughs) spill a lot. Exactly. And they will learn not to spill. Actually, there's a chapter in Capable where I talk about um, uh, safer, better off, more comfortable. And I actually argue that for our our kids who've somehow been labeled, it's probably not better, but important for them to have spend less time 
in environments that are designed to be safer, better off, and more comfortable for them. Well, Deb, let me ask you, how is Jack doing now and and his siblings too? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, Jack has just graduated from college. He's working for an environmental engineering firm um, here uh, in northern Colorado. He has signed for that a car that he bought with his own money. He, he lives at home now, but he's looking for an apartment. So someday soon he may be leaving those notes to a roommate to buy milk in his own handwriting. I love that. <laughs> he and his twin sis, uh, and he, his twin sister, his and his younger sister and brother, there are four of them, love each other a lot, but like all kids that age are equally caught up in their 20-something lives, each figuring out adulting kind of in their own way. Well, Temple Grandin wrote the foreword for your book. Um, for those who are not familiar with her, she's a highly renowned professor at Colorado State University, an expert in the fields of both animal welfare and autism. What is the connection with Temple Grandin? I'm wondering, was she an inspiration to you as a parent? Oh, yeah. I think Temple, yes. I think Temple is amazing and inspiring to everyone she meets. She is truly an exceptional person with an exceptional mind. Um, Temple was generous to write the foreword. And I don't think she'll mind me saying it was her mom that interested me the most. I really saw um, Temple as the quintessential example of the outcomes of capable parenting. Because way back in the 1950s, Temple's mom uh, was parenting her in, in, in many of the ways I talk about in the book. Uh, Temple likes to tell a story of herself being afraid to go into town, but her mom ignores all that and sends her anyway to the hardware store to get some boards and nails for a project they're doing. And, and Temple proudly says how, so she went to the hardware store and got those boards and nails and got to work. So I think it's, it's really Temple and her mom's experience that I think is the inspiration for this book. What do you most want readers to take away from Capable? Yeah, um, I, I want them to take away that great things happen when we don't parent from a place of fear and that the messages we send to our kids over the course of a childhood matter to an extraordinary degree. Um, I, you know, I want to I be clear. I'm not one of these parents who, who claims to have cured their child, which was something that was popular around uh, autism, oh gosh, in the 90s. Um, you know, Jack still has soda syndrome, but it's only a small part of his story. Most of all, I want readers to take away that they can change the trajectory of their child's life, regardless of the challenges their child faces. They may still have that diagnosis, but it doesn't need to be front and center in their life. You must get a lot of questions from parents, what kind of things do you hear? Yeah, no, I get I get a lot of questions. Um, you know, how can it work for my kid? Yeah, but you seem to have had boundless energy. Uh, what about me? What can I expect? My kid is is performing at this level now. Um, they ask questions like, "What do you do when it gets really hard?" And how do I make sure? Others, other people also hold my child to high expectations. 
And finally, how can, how can we just have fun if there's all this work to be done? So those are some of the kinds of things I've met with. Yeah. Are, are there lessons that people who aren't parents can learn from your book too? Yeah. And I, and I kind of want to expand your question just a little bit. I think there's lessons that parents with typical kids, you know, typical kids without labels and non-parents can learn from the book. Um, you know, all kids will experience challenges um, and will find themselves in a place of being high needs at one point or another in their lives. And I've had many, 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 many readers who have typical kids um, who say they were really drawn to the book. Um, and I think it's because the messages, the message of confidence that we need to send regard, uh, matter regardless. But I do think the stakes are higher for kids who've been singled out by the world as having a special needs. When you look at the whole package, capable is really about dignity. And that needs to be that needs to go out to people at whatever point they are in their lifetime. Deborah Winking is the author of Capable, a story of triumph for children the world has judged as different. She works at the Center for Educational Leadership at the University of Washington. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Erin. Thank you so much. our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.